You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. All right, so... Aim for redemption and you will touch the glory of God. Aim for redemption and you will touch the glory of God. That is the message I've chosen to pull out of two pretty difficult passages or chapters or scenes in the book of Daniel. Aim for redemption and you will touch the glory of God. I want to start by talking about the brain. Your brain. Your brain. Your brain is a miracle. <laughs> Your brain is a miracle. Here are my brain jokes. Are you ready? If you if you were here at the first service, do not call it out, okay? Because these I only got I don't, I don't have any other brain jokes. I only have these brain jokes. What do you call a human skull that is missing a hundred billion neurons? Mine, a child. How about a no-brainer? What is amygdala? I'm not sure, but for some reason I feel very strongly about it. That's really funny, y'all. The neurosurgeons in the room are cracking up right now. And the psychologist. Come on, Don, I need to hear your laugh really loud. Because <laughs> I got one more for you. What was the, why was the neuron sent to the principal's office? It had trouble controlling its impulses. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. You're killing me. Your brain is a miracle. Turn to your neighbor and say, your brain is a miracle. Your brain is a miracle. Uh-uh, no, no, do not say it is a miracle you had a brain. Don't say that. <laughs> say your brain is a miracle. Come on, say that to somebody like you mean it. And your brain is also tender. Your, our brains can feel strongly for reasons we don't quite understand. And we do have trouble controlling our impulses. Let me get an amen from the 12 steppers in the room. It can isolate memories our brain can and shelter us from things we cannot comprehend. And it can also misfire. So for instance, if my parents divorced while I was young and I somehow got the message, even if it was irrationally given, that it was my fault, I might find myself as an adult constantly overcorrecting or overfunctioning to somehow atone for what I see as my perceived fault. Does this make sense? Or if I've been in combat and someone around me has died, I might take on survivor's remorse to such a degree that it numbs my ability to take joy in living. Your brain has probably found some coping mechanism like that. You may not even know it's happening. These messages, faulty messages that don't reflect reality but drive our motives, they can be really damaging to us. 
And, and, and those messages have driven the world's tyrants and they have also driven the world's saints. Maybe there are messages in your life that have rewired you and changed how you respond to life. Some of them are learned and are good and some of them are, were learned in very hard ways and they're not good for you. And you're walking around with a rewired brain and you don't even know it. I'm thinking about all this because of the three men we meet in Daniel today in chapters four and five. These men all made it to the king's palace. I mean, they made it to that level, but they all got there in very different ways. Daniel was, this, was, a, was a Jew who made it into the palace because he was exiled. For 70 years, he spent time in an exiled country, and he, and he never lost his faith in God. He kept it on the straight and narrow road. That was Daniel. And then there was Nebuchadnezzar, whose father actually founded the Babylonian Empire. His father was the guy who made the empire and then handed it over to him. Clearly not the brightest bulb in the king palace box. And, and Nebuchadnezzar could find himself going back and forth and back and forth. He, he wanted to worship God, but he just couldn't figure out which God. And then there's his son or grandson. We don't know which, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, he, um, he had the same opportunities as Nebuchadnezzar, the same blatant opportunity to turn his, uh, his life around. And somehow he never got there. And so you got everything from flaky to faithful in the Bible and also in this room. <laughs> Everything from flaky to faithful. In the Bible and in the world around us. Everything from flaky to faithful. And the question is, where will you find yourself? You know, all three of these men, all three of them, wanted to touch the glory of God. And the problem was that all three of them took a very different approach to get there. Um, who is it? C.S. Uh, Lewis is probably the first one to say it just this way. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. That aim at earth and you will get neither. That seems like a good lesson from these lives. So I'm taking this as a banner over this whole section of Daniel, chapters four and five. Aim for redemption and you'll actually be able to touch the glory of God. But if you aim for self-sufficiency, you'll miss it. So let's look at his story, uh, at, at, uh, the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, and, and we'll start in chapter four. If you're flipping, if you're trying to find Daniel without looking in the table of contents because you're in church and you're supposed to know where it is, and so you don't want to look like the table of contents, go to Psalms, and then Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then you're going to find Song of Solomon, and uh, Nope, you'll, see, you'll hit Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. That's, you'll get there. You'll get there. Just flip to the middle and flip this way a little bit. You'll get to Daniel chapter 4. Or just look in your table of contents. Just, there you go. You get to the table of contents. <laughs> because you're at Mosaic. So if you're, trying to, if you're trying to impress somebody here, you're in the wrong house. So we're about to read two, well, a, a dream and a vision. That's what we're about to see. Both of them are about the dangers of unholy ambition and poorly placed glory. So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. It can be a little confusing, this chapter, because it kind of flips back and forth between first person and third person. 
And, and it's the same guy saying all of it. It's sort of like your brain, right? Where you also flip back and forth between first person and third person, even if you are the person you're talking to. Um, so King Nebuchadnezzar is about like you and me. Verse four, chapter four, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live on all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. So right here, he's actually all about God. He says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. In other words, I was in my house, minding my own business, when God showed up. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Here's the thing. If you are a magician, enchanter, astrologer, and diviner who makes your living off of the king and who knows the king will throw you into a fiery furnace just as soon as look at you, you're not going to interpret a dream that doesn't m- m- put him in a good light. So, yeah, that's what, oh, I, I got no clue what that means, King Nebuchadnezzar. Long live King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what your dream is. Finally, I brought the one person with courage enough to tell the truth. Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying on my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree, I think it might be me, he's thinking, who was large and strong, and its top touched the sky, who was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all, and under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. And if the dream had just stopped there, I'd have been great. I'd have felt awesome about all of it. (laughs) but it didn't. So let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar. As I said, his his dad was the one who established the Babylonian dynasty. He was there when Babylon captured Judah and then became king over the whole uh, empire. And when Babylon captured Judah, everybody, every Jew who wasn't killed was taken into exile. Daniel was among them who was sent into exile. He probably spent more than 70 years of his life, which means a whole lot more of his life was spent in exile than out of exile, away from his home. I think that's important because it, you know, Daniel was re-educated in the palace. He was taught the culture of a pagan world, and yet somehow, somehow, he developed an impressive gift of faith in the one true God and a gift of hearing from God. What, what, what makes a brain like Daniel's function? I want that brain. He was known as a man with insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. 
Those words are straight from the mouth of a king, and all that wisdom came from God. The things he heard when he listened to God saved lives and won influence and changed the course of a nation. So here he is now with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, I've had this dream, I've had this dream. My whole life, this is Nebuchadnezzar, my whole life has been based on conquest. So it it works for me, right? It works for me when I'm the one in charge. But what if this happens? Look at verse 13. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches But I want you to underline all of verse 15. Let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze. Notice it keeps its roots. The stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. I want you to underline that and remember it because we'll come back to that stump. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Don't worry about the seven times. It's a lot of time. Just, it's a lot of time. The decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me or want to, but you can. You can, because the spirit of the gods is in you. So that's the dream that has Nebuchadnezzar confused. It was all going so well until the part about living with animals and being insane. (laughs) Imagine being being the person who has to interpret that. Daniel will tell the king, I hate to do this to you, but I know what I know. So here it is. You're the guy who has it easy now. You're that tree, greatness and dominion and power, and you have put all your eggs in your own basket. We are programmed to put confidence in our own performance. You should write that down. That is a mark of a fallen brain. We are programmed to put confidence in our own performance. We are programmed as fallen human beings towards self-reliance. It creeps in when we feel like things are getting out of control. It's how we course correct. I'll just do it myself. Nobody else gets me. I'll just do it myself. And we don't want to call that self-glorification, but that's exactly what it is. It's somewhere on that spectrum between sort of where we are, we We don't think of ourselves as as self-glorifying, but then on the other end of the spectrum, way down there, is Satan himself as the ultimate self-exhausting, self-exalting being. That's Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. He lives somewhere 
between the average guy and Satan himself on that spectrum of self-exaltation, self-glorification, self-sufficiency. He glories in himself. And when the author of his dream, God Almighty, calls him out on it, he gets confused. And so Daniel says, you're that tree. You're all greatness and dominion and power in your own mind. But that won't last. Eventually, everything you've you've built will come crumbling down around you. And in fact, it's the one true God who will bring you low, who will make you crazy, send you to live with wild animals until you get it, that you cannot grab the glory of God or or share it with a jealous, competitive spirit, which convicts me right down to my toes trying to share the glory of God with my jealous, competitive spirit. So I have a question for you. Just raise your hand. How many of you have been what you would call saved? Go ahead, raise your hand. Raise your hand. All right. How many of you have probably been saved twice? Go ahead, raise your hand if you think you <laughs> I want to ask you to be honest. Remember, this is a safe place. I'm not interested in your theology right this moment. I just want you to be honest. How many of you have probably been saved three times or eight times or I don't really even know how many other times? (laughs) Or, listen to me, if you cannot imagine yourself saying that you've been saved more than one time, can you at least say that there seem to be unsaved parts of you still living in the same body with the saved parts of you? (laughs) let me ask it this way are there messages that you've come to believe that may not be serving you well are there parts of you trying to share the glory of God with spirits or habits or behaviors a kind of self-reliant pride that may have come out of some broken place in your life that has nothing at all to do with God's sufficiency I just want to know if I have friends in the room or if I'm preaching to myself Because I totally get that thing where parts of me seem to be at war with other parts of me, parts that seem to have missed the word that I got saved somewhere along the way. There are parts of my brain that are saved, and there are parts of my brains that may be saved, but they're hanging on by a thread. Yes, I get it. Listen, Jesus saves the whole person. Yes, he does. But sometimes it seems as if parts of me missed that message or got the wrong message. And so inside, in here, where nobody else is looking, I am having all these impatient conversations. First person going to third person. I get you, Nebuchadnezzar, with these unsaved parts of me that can be so painful. That conversation can be so painful. Can I get an amen? when the craving is still there, or the habit is so stubborn, or the wound is still gaping, or the lie is still speaking, and maybe I know it, or maybe everybody around me knows it, and I don't know it, or maybe none of us know it, but Jesus does. 
And it leaves us wondering why we can't quite get to God, why we can't get it the way other people do, and we want to blame it on Babylon, right? We want to blame it on Babylon, on, the, on, on, on whoever has exiled us to this broken place. We want to blame it on whatever wound or whatever person or whatever thing that happened, and maybe it was five generations before me. I say it all the time. You can't swing a dead cat in my family without hitting an alcoholic. You haven't ever heard me say that? So it's not my fault. But I can't remember the years between 18 and 30. And God says, because he loves you this much, if you want to know the real source of your pain, your exile, your distance, here it is. You, not them, you, you, are trying to share the glory of God with a spirit or an idol that has no place in a saved life. And that's not meant to make you feel guilty. That's just meant to say, look, friend, you have a fallen brain. Get on board with where we're going here. When we shoot for our own self-sufficiency or our own self-protection or our own self-interest or our own self-soothing, come on, we miss it. What is it C.S. Lewis said? Aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim for redemption and you actually touch the glory of God. Paul said it. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, after living this incredibly um, self-righteous life, he said to Philippians, he told the Philippians, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. That's what I could lean on, Paul says, and what I did lean on, and it didn't work for me. And so he says, Philippians 3, 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not, listen to me, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes not from my own self-sufficiency or degrees or things I've accomplished or can credit to my name, but from God only. And only on the basis of faith. Jeff Van Vonderen says it's almost as if Paul is saying, look, everybody glories in something. Don't glory in your own performance. Sometimes it's not that glorious. <laughs> Don't glory in the fact that you read your Bible every day. You might miss a day. 
I love how quiet it gets when I say that. I don't want to be the one to say I missed a lot of days. Don't glory in your bank account. We could have a depression or a recession. That wouldn't be very glorious. Don't put confidence in people's opinions of you. They might change their minds. You glory in Christ Jesus. Put your, your, your confidence in Jesus and what he's done and in the stability of what that says about you. So Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson the hard way. He gloried in himself, and his dream came true. Scene for scene, he went crazy, ended up living with the animals, losing everything. And then one day, he found a power greater than himself who could restore him to sanity. And so he said, Daniel 4.34, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the people on earth. And no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? And then he says, verse 36, at the same time that my sanity was restored, in other words, at the same time, I put glory where glory belonged. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. When we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar the other day, Christopher said, isn't it kind of bizarre to think we might actually see him in heaven? but we might. I mean, because he was flaky and kind of a mess, but something kept drawing him back to God, and this is the last word we get on his life. He's come home to the one true God. Aim for redemption, and you'll touch the glory of God. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son Belshazzar became king and made all the same mistakes his father made. He lived the same prideful, self-promoting existence, only he took it to another level. He asked that the gold and silver goblets be used. Listen to this. He actually said, somebody go find the goblets that we stole from the Israelite temple. We're going to have a party. You want to make God mad? Come to his table in the wrong way. He said, uh, they drank wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, and suddenly, while they were in the middle of doing that, a finger of a human hand appeared. This is literally where, you know, you've heard people say that, that old saying, I see the writing on the wall. This is where it comes from. He literally saw the writing on the wall. Literally. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster. This is chapter 5, verse 4. Wrote on the plaster wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. <laughs> it's an Old Testament 
visual aid for Paul's word to the Corinthians. He would tell them, you be careful how you drink from this cup because you could end up drinking your own demise. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And so here was this king living that out. And so again, Daniel was called to interpret the writing on the wall. It, the, the words literally were mini, mini, takeo parson, which is just hilarious. Say that together. Mini, mini, takeo parson. Pull that out at your next party. That's really awesome. This is what was written on the wall. Mini, mini, takeo parson. And Daniel had to share a hard word with this king. He told him, you're your father's child. When his heart became hardened with pride, he was driven into the wilderness, lost everything he had until he was willing to acknowledge that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And you, his son, you haven't humbled yourself. Even though you knew this about your father, by not honoring the God who holds your life in his hands, you have set yourself against him. And then Daniel interpreted the words. He said, here's, it, here's what it means. God has numbered the days of your reign. It'll all crumble, friend. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Whew. That's a tough thing to hear. Your kingdom will be divided among your enemies. That middle one, you've been weighed, that's takeo. You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. That is a devastating word. It's the word we're most afraid of, isn't it? It's, it's the ultimate fallen word. So many of us filter life through that message. It's why we work so hard to be the master of our own fate, to be self-sufficient, because we're scared to death of finding out we might be weighed and found wanting. So we listen to the lies of inadequacy while we overcompensate like crazy. The answer to that sense of, of, of inadequacy that we feel inside is the adequacy found in Christ. Which is to say, you can't get there. You can't get there. The answer is Christ's sufficiency. Do you remember the line from Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the stump? that would be bound with iron and bronze. Daniel interpreted that image. If you flip back to Daniel chapter four, uh, verse 26. He said, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Huh? In other words, God didn't kill the stump. He left it with roots and an opportunity for redemption. And that kind of prefigures the more famous stump that we also find in the Old Testament. You know, the people of Israel in exile in Babylon found a fruitless stump of a tree there and they, they were compelled to live in that place for a long time in a land where self-glorification was God, but they would eventually go home to a land where another tree was planted. 
a tree that wouldn't die even when it was cut down. Isaiah talks about it, Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. All of that tells me there is a way to get your brain back on track with the kingdom, and it is to place yourself with the stump of Jesse, the branch. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. Do you hear that? He doesn't see that you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Actually, he jumps in the balance with you so that the balance is now in your favor. He doesn't judge with what he sees in his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. He judges with his own righteousness. And he says this, and that, this is verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples of the nation, and the, and the nations will rally to him, and his resting place, his resting place will be glorious. His resting place will be glorious. And so the people of Israel will eventually go home to that land where that tree was planted, the tree that wouldn't die even when it was cut down. Its stump would produce a branch and their hope was in that branch, that twig that pops up on the stump that looks all used up. Think giving tree, a stump that's good for nothing. It looks like it's good for nothing but for old people to sit on and until something all of a sudden shoots up from it, a branch, a sign of life, a source of hope. In Isaiah's prophecy, this is the Messiah, the, the anointed one. And he is described in, in Isaiah in the most lavish of terms. The Spirit of God rests on him, abides with him, and there is wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. Oh, he is the perfect mind. And there is a greater glory. There is a greater glory that an ancient once found on the other end of his, sanity, of his insanity. It is the greater glory that speaks a better message, a healing message into the unsaved parts of us. It speaks a healing message into our confused and overwrought brains, into our anxiety and our fears and our worries. There is a better message a greater glory who delights in speaking his redemption over us aim for redemption and you'll get the, the glory of God so I want to invite you right now to set everything aside bow your head I see what time it is give me a few more minutes because I want to give you space We will spend a few minutes right now in confession so we don't make the mistake of Belshazzar and eat or drink our demise. 
somewhere we need to get, sometime we need to get the two halves of our brain talking to each other. The unsaved parts of us talking with the saved parts of us. And today, right here, right now, this is as good a place as any to do that. So you're going to have to get honest with yourself. There is a place in the historic confession that's part of the communion liturgy that says this we have leaned we have not leaned on what we can understand or we have sorry we have leaned on only what we can understand and we have not left room for mystery we have followed the desires of our own hearts we have left undone those things which we ought to have done we have done those things which we ought not to have done we have listened too much to the voices of pride and to our fears of not measuring up we have been more interested in our own glory than in yours almighty and most merciful god king of kings and lord of lords we have tried too hard I wonder if you can take a moment right now simply to acknowledge that in all those places where you've reached for your own glory, where you have tried so hard to do this on your own, where you've tried too hard, where you've listened to the wrong messages. where you have let the wounds speak for you rather than the salvation that comes through Christ speak for you you take a moment and acknowledge where you've fallen short Where in your life have you let the demon of inadequacy cut down your tree, bind it with iron and bronze, and leave you a stump of a person because you've believed the lie, I've been weighed and found wanting? we're here together Jesus and we are making our confession and we trust your word which tells us that you are faithful and just that if we confess our sins you will forgive but Lord we, we realize it's just too easy say if I've sinned 
please forgive me, or I have sinned, please forgive me, to leave it in such a generic place that we've not done the work, we've not pulled out the bad messages, we've, we've not repaired the broken walls. What would you have us do, Lord? What would you have us do? Restore us to the joy of your salvation. Give us the grace to live healthier, more godly lives so that what we do and say and think and trust brings glory not to us, but to you. If you confess your sins, the word says that he is faithful and just. You are forgiven. Will you stand? And you are forgiven, not, on, not based on your own righteousness, but on that of Christ, who on the night he gave himself up for us, took bread and broke it, and gave thanks to his Father in heaven for it, and he gave it to his followers, and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you, and as often as you eat from this loaf, remember me. After supper, he took the cup and he gave thanks to his Father in heaven for it and he gave it to his followers and he said, drink from this cup, all of you drink from this cup with humility and with gratitude. And as often as you drink from it, remember that I have poured my blood out for you and for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink from this cup, remember me. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit over these gifts and make them be for us the very body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Make us one with each other and one in unity with your message for the whole world until you come again in your final victory and we feast at that heavenly banquet table. All honor and glory is yours, almighty God, with your Holy Spirit in your holy church. We do love you, Jesus. We do love you, Jesus. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.